Well, it's summertime, and one of the things that I love to do in summertime that probably most of us do is go to the movies. How many of you guys have gone to a movie this summer? Bunch of you? Okay, cool. How many of you have seen Wonder Woman? A few of you? Yeah, good. Awesome. Wonder Woman. I saw it a couple weeks ago. If you don't know uh, what, the, what the premise of the movie is, I can explain it to you. So, uh, okay, so Wonder Woman. This is a gal. Her name is Diana. She lived on a mythological island full of warrior princesses. Cool, huh? And so she leaves her island, and she's going to go fight the god of war, Ares. And the setting is World War I, okay? All right, so it's a, it's a superhero movie. That's a, that's a fun premise, you know. But I'm still able to kind of suspend my disbelief up to a point. Up to a point. And in this movie, there is, there's something that happened that I was just like, come on. So, okay, so it's World War I. She's in Germany. She's with some soldiers, and they're, they're going into a village that is being held by German soldiers. Okay, so she's fighting Germans. I mean, she's bouncing bullets off her bracelets and pow, 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 you know, all the superhero things she does, right? She gets to the middle of the village, and there's a sniper in the bell tower. Okay, so he's pow, pow, he's sniping everybody. Okay, so how does she deal with it? She launches herself up into the building and crashes into the bell tower and brings it down onto herself and onto the sniper, Okay, wow, all right. I'm still able to suspend my disbelief at this point because that's what superheroes do, right? They launch themselves into buildings, no big deal. So we're waiting for her to emerge from the rubble. There's smoke, there's rubble, and she comes out of the rubble, strides out, and there's not a bit of dust on her. I mean, her hair is perfect. It's like she walked out of the salon. At this point, I'm like, this isn't realistic. Not realistic at all. How could she have a building fall on her and not have anything on her? That's ridiculous. You know, I I was thinking that this would be a really handy superpower to have with a toddler. I I have barbecue stains on my jeans. You probably can't see them, but believe me, they're there. Wonder Woman wouldn't have barbecue stains on her jeans. She would not. That's her superpower, right? Anyway, uh, Wonder Woman. Who's the Wonder Woman of the Bible? I think Deborah is a Wonder Woman. She's a Wonder Woman of the Bible. We've been talking about this, this summer, um, best supporting actors. Those, those people in the Bible who maybe didn't get as much of the limelight as some of the more well-known names of the Bible. But they still have something to offer to us and tell us about what it means to follow God. Right? And, and Deborah is certainly one of those people. Um, she doesn't get as much of the limelight, but she's a remarkable woman. And I, as I was studying Deborah and I was, I was preparing for this sermon, I realized that this story is actually more about more than about Deborah, it also includes another character, Barak. And you might not know who Barak is, and I'll talk more about him later. But I think this is also the story of Barak. So the story of Deborah and Barak. The story takes place in the book of Judges. Judges, uh, if you don't know or kind of know the setting, I'll explain it a little bit to you. Judges takes place after Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt, right? The Exodus. And Joshua has, has led them into the promised land. And then there's a failure of succession. There's no leader that comes after Moses and Joshua. And so everything just goes to pot in Israel. It's a mess. It's just chaos. And so there, for 400 years, it's this cycle of, of violence and, and chaos and, and deliverance and violence and deliverance. I like to say that the book of Judges is the Game of Thrones book of the Bible. How many of you watch Game of Thrones? I don't watch it. It's a terrible show. 
because it's filled with the same kind of bloodshed and intrigue and sex and scandal that the book of Judges is. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And book of Judges isn't a book for, it's not PG-13 even. It's R-rated. And so in the middle of all this um, chaos and, and bloodshed and all the stuff that's happening in, in the book of Judges, God raises up these judges, uh, deliverers for the people of Israel to rescue them. And one of these judges is Deborah. So let's read about Deborah and her story in Judges chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, Gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, as we read this story that is for us ancient, we pray that you would make it today relevant. Lord, what do we have to learn from this? You know, Father, and so we ask your spirit to come reveal to us what this means for us today. And Lord, we trust that you are present to us, that you are speaking to us now, each one of us individually. And so Lord, with that, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have our our story set up, and there are three, really three main characters for us. Um, The first, obviously, is Deborah, who is is our Wonder Woman, right? And then there's Barak. Barak's name means lightning. Okay, he's probably some, some sort of warrior or leader in, in, the, in the people of Israel. And I like to think of him as, as like someone like Chris Pine, right? He's sort of the brawn to Deborah's brains. He's the muscle man who probably has some doughy blue eyes that you just kind of melt in, right? Okay, so that's Barak. And then we have Sisera, right? Sisera and Jabin, but for our purposes we'll focus on Sisera. Sisera is our villain. I couldn't really think of a good villain... For him, so just pick one of these guys, and there you go. You have your villain, right? So Sisera uh, is not to be underestimated. We, we kind of see nine hundred chariots, and that might not mean a lot to us, but nine hundred chariots was a formidable force. It was a technological advantage over the people of Israel. It's kind of like having tanks when your enemy has bows and arrows, right? So even with ten thousand guys, nine hundred chariots is nothing to sneeze at. So this is a real underdog story here. So there's our, our three characters so far that we've been revealed. The story is set up. Um, 
But as we continue to read and as you think about this, I want you to see this through the perspective of Barak. Imagine what he's feeling. Imagine what he's experiencing, his motivations, how he's living out this story. So don't just think about Deborah. Think about Barak. Because like I said, this is as much his story as it is Deborah's. Let's continue reading here in, in Judges. Picking it back up in verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hogoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Just pause here. Who wins the battle here? No, not Barak. Read, read more carefully, right? So it says, and the Lord routed Sisera. We need to pay attention to that. That's, that's very intentional. That it doesn't give the credit to Barak. After all, like I said, 10,000 men against 900 chariots is, is outmatched. So who really wins the battle here? The Lord does. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Let's continue reading. Because our villain hasn't met his end, right? Verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Haber the Kenite. You just pause here for a moment. Jael, right? So I like to think of Jael as sort of this morally ambiguous character who you just don't know which side of the line she's going to land on. Is she going to do the right thing or is she going to go after her own purposes? I think of Catwoman here, right? Catwoman's a sort of alluring, beguiling character who's, who does her own thing. And so, I, I don't know, it's fun to imagine J.L. in this respect. So let's, let's continue and learn a little bit more about J.L. Verse 18. And J.L. came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent. And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks of you, is anyone here, say, no. But Jael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. (laughs) Yeah, understatement, huh? And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent. And there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. Wow. Okay, what an ending. You just don't read the story and get introduced to the villain and think, yeah, that guy's going to end up with a tent peg in his head. It's, it's a shocker, right? You just, you're just impressed by it. You, you're kind of blown away by the violence of it. 
um, by, by the cunningness, the scandalousness of Jael. It's a really incredible story. But what's the point? I think the point of this story, one of the things that we can learn immediately, is that they did not win this conquest or this, this battle because of Deborah's wisdom. They didn't win this because of Barak's prowess in battle. They didn't win this even because of Jael's cleverness. What does it say? God subdued Jabin that day. I mean, think about it. We already know that the battle was, a, was an underdog battle. You have this crazy introduction of Jael and what she does. Nobody could have accomplished this but God for the people of Israel. The honor has to go to God. And this is, I mean, this is something that's uh, repeated throughout Scripture. We see stories like this all the time. And as a matter of fact, it's part of the big story. God raises up a man who's been infertile for almost a century. And from him comes the nation of Israel, Abraham. He raises up 12 men who, I mean, zealots and tax collectors and, and fishermen. And he makes from them a movement. And craziest of all, he comes as a man himself in weakness and dies on a cross. And that means victory. Right? So this is the kind of thing that God does. He does things upside down. He uses the weak things of this world to confound the wise. One of the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And one of the reasons why I think that God does this is because it's too easy for us to give the credit to people like Deborah or Jael. He makes sure that we know when things happen in Scripture, they happen because of God. Because he is the one who is orchestrating things. He is the one who is doing things. So he uses strange people, weak people, to accomplish his ends. So I want to dive a little bit more into this and kind of explore this bit with, with Deborah and Barak even more. It says in verse 4, that Deborah was a prophetess. A prophetess was someone who um, gave God's word to the people, right? Words of encouragement, words of warning, even. That's what a prophetess meant. She was she spoke God's word to the people. But I think something that's implicit in the text is, is another role as well. I think Deborah was a priestess to the people as well. A priestess was someone who uh, a priest or a priestess was someone who moder- mediated God's presence the people, right? Mediated God's presence. And so not only was Deborah giving God's word to the people, but she was mediating his presence to them. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that, and I don't have time to go into that, unfortunately. But let's just say that Deborah is just this remarkable woman, a a prophet, priestess sort of role that is really not seen anywhere else in the Old Testament or in Judges particularly. She, She stands out very uniquely. She is Indeed, a Wonder Woman, right? And here's what's really remarkable about Deborah. We don't see her anywhere else in Scripture. She gets her, her ten minutes of, of fame in Deborah, or Judges 4, and that's it. But we do see Barak in Scripture. We see him two more times in Scripture. And, and one time in no less of an illustrious place than Hebrews 11. And if you know Hebrews 11, you know that this is a passage that's called the Hall of Saints. There's description after description of, of men and women who, who um, exemplified lives of faith. 
And so in this passage is Barak. I want to read this to you in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. The author has just gone through a number of people and he says here close to the end of, of this passage, he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So Barak is name-dropped in the same breath as David, as, as Samson, as these, as these guys. You would say, yeah, they're, they're kind of a big deal, right? Here's Barak right in there. Why? I mean, how? It's because, you know, when I asked you to kind of get into Barak's mind and to think about this from his perspective. And honestly, when I did this, when I was thinking about this story, my initial impressions of Barak was that he was a coward. Kind of a, kind of a little weak need. Maybe he didn't think he was up to the task. When he goes to Deborah and says, I won't go without you. My impression of him is, ah, he doesn't have what it takes. But here he is in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. So what gives? How did he make it there? Well, I think it's easy to kind of miss, but there's a connection in Judges 4 here. In, in the Old Testament, there's these echoes, I like to call them, echoes of the Old Testament. And a lot of the Old Testament will echo back from one of the, the pinnacle of, of the story in the Old Testament, which is the Exodus story. And you hear the echoes of the Exodus story all throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. And I think we hear here an echo from Barak of one of the most important pieces of the Exodus story. In Exodus 33, I'll paraphrase what happens in Exodus 33. So the people of Israel, if you remember this story, Moses has gone up and he's getting the Ten Commandments from God. And meanwhile, the people of Israel get bored and they're twiddling thumbs. And they're like, I've got an idea, let's build a golden calf. So they build a golden calf and they're worshiping it. And Moses comes back down from the mountain and he sees what they're doing. And he throws the Ten Commandments, the tablets on the ground and he, he says, what are you doing? And he's ticked. And so is God. So here in Exodus 33, is, we see this conversation between God and Moses, where God, Moses is, is bargaining or, or pleading for the people of Israel. Because God is saying, you know what? I am done with these people. They are stiff-necked. And all this, despite everything I have done for them, they don't listen to me. So you know, I'll, 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 I'll make do on my promises. They can go up to the promised land. But I won't go with them. I'll send an angel. But I will not go. And Moses says, no. No, you can't do that. You must go with us. Without us, you, we are, without you, we are nothing. You must go with us, Moses says to God. Does that sound familiar? So when Barak says to Deborah, I will go if you will go with me, but I will not go if you do not go. He is echoing this encounter that Moses has with God. And if Deborah stands in as this representative of of God's presence for, for the people of Israel, then really what Barak is doing is asking God to go with him. He's recognizing that he doesn't have what it takes. So the reason why Barak makes it into Hebrews 11 is because of his faith. It's because of his faith. 
And whether he was a coward or not, actually doesn't matter. The important thing is, is that he recognized that he couldn't do it. And so he has faith that with God, he can do it. Interesting, huh? I was, I was really surprised by this. I didn't realize that Barak had this kind of role in the story. And I was also really convicted. Because as I thought about it, I realized that I probably would not have had the same response that Barak did. And, and I imagine what I would have done in, in Barak's place, I probably would have said something like this. Well, suck it up. Do or die. I got to do this. God says I got to go down there and face Sisera. Well, here goes. And the reason why I think I would have done that is because I recognize within me a tendency to believe that it's up to me. That it's up to me. And yet that's not what happens with Barak. Barak has this level of faith that, that he goes forth and he pursues what, what, uh, what God, God to go with him. You know, when we think about this, I, I think that we all kind of resonate with this at some level, right? Maybe you're resonating with me and you're realizing, yeah, you know, sometimes that's me. I think this is something that we can struggle with as a culture. There's this bumper sticker that you've seen out there probably. It says, God is my co-pilot. I'm sorry if you have this bumper sticker. Because um, this is probably one of the most pernicious bits of pop theology that's out there right now. Just think about it. If God is your co-pilot, what does that make you? The pilot? The captain? And yet that's, that's how we live sometimes, isn't it? So I, I imagine it like this. We go about our lives and we say, okay, God, welcome to the cockpit. Uh, I'm glad you're my first officer today because if we hit some turbulence, you're the man for that, right? So thank you for taking us through the turbulence and maybe the landing. But you know what? I've got this. I'm the captain. Most of the time, I doubt there'll be any issues. Have a good ride. That's not how we do it. Isn't that how we live our Christian lives sometimes? We think God is our co-pilot. So when we see this statement from Barak, it's almost even a prayer. It's a prayer that says, I am not the captain here. I am not the captain. I'm at best a passenger. And this, this plane, this ship will not go without you. And, you know, I've recognized in my own life, when I've imagined that I'm the captain of my life, it doesn't take too long for that ship to come crashing to the ground in a flaming hulk. Isn't that true for our lives? You know, there, there are things that happen in our life that help us to realize that we're not in as much control as we think we are. You might have experienced these things. Maybe you've got a cancer diagnosis. You've been laid off from a job. Gone through divorce. Those kinds of events just shake us. And they make us realize we aren't the captain of our lives. We're at best passengers. And there's only one captain who's worthy of flying this plane. You know, in, in the kingdom of God, our strengths are our liabilities. Because they, they sometimes blind us from seeing what God is doing. and From entering into the kingdom of God. You know, whether it's, uh, maybe you've got an education. I've got an education, right? Um, maybe you're financially secure. Maybe you've got a good personality. Whatever it is, sometimes those things hinder us 
in the kingdom of God. Because we look to them for our salvation. We look and depend on them day in and day out to help us to live life. And maybe, you know, they can get us to some extent. They can get us there to some extent. But in the end, they fail us. And in the end, when we depend on our strengths, we miss out on the kingdom of God. And don't we do that so often? We don't allow ourselves to enter into places of weakness or uncomfortableness. We don't admit that we need God every second, every hour, every day. And so we just cruise on through life or we crash and burn. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. When we are ready, when we ask God to be present to us like Barak did, he's there. He is there. Deborah says to Barak, surely I will go with you. There's an emphatic, yes, of course, I'm going with you. In Matthew 28, the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is giving his last words in Matthew 28, the very last chapter. And you, you, you probably heard this passage, the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, right? And the very last thing he says in that passage, Behold, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's his promise to us. That's Jesus' promise to us. That he will be with us. The same thing that Barak was asking, Jesus is promising to us, is his presence. That's good news for us. That's good news. He's just there, a breath away, if we would let go of the stick. You know, in, when we're evaluating our lives, one of the ways that I've recognized in my own life and and maybe you can recognize in your own life, to kind of evaluate, where am I at in my faithfulness? One of the ways that we do that is, is through our prayer life. Prayer is, is evidence of belief. So foundational. And, and prayerlessness is the evidence of, of unbelief. That's why we spent a year, this past year, talking about prayer, because we know it's so foundational. If we are not a people of prayer, then what are we depending on? So even, it's, it's good even to pray about prayer, or even to pray about asking God to sensitize our hearts to him. And one of the things that I like to do is, um, I will keep a Bible on my desk to remind me, when I come into work, I'll, I'll see that Bible and I'll say, ah, I know what I want to do. First thing, before I open my computer, before I do anything else, I flip open that Bible to one of two passages. Either Psalms 127, which says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Or John 15, which says, abide in me and I in you. He it is that abides in me, he it is that will bear much fruit. But if you do not abide in me, without me you are nothing. You can do nothing. And I read one of those two passages and I pray through it. I pray through it and I ask God to to sensitize me, to remind me that even what I do, especially in what I do, in my ministry, I cannot do it without God. It'd be easy for me to imagine that I could. So I want that, that prayerful reminder when I start my day that I need God to do it. And in that way, I hope to actually imitate Barak. 
that prayer of desperation, I will not go without you. So for many of us, I wonder if you are feeling as convicted as I felt while I was preparing for this. So I want us to take a few moments in, in confession and reflection and silence. I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to come forward and prepare for this. And as they kind of play some music to help us to, to be in our own reflections, I want you to think about what is, what is our prayer life? What does your life of faithfulness look like? Maybe you're like me and you would realize that, man, I would hope to have the same reaction that Barak did, but I would not. Maybe you've never, ever confessed that you need God. And this morning you're realizing that. Maybe the Holy Spirit is revealing to you your desperate need for his presence in your life. Let's take a few moments and just be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us, what he is speaking to us, and respond to his conviction, respond to his presence. There's this moment in the story of Deborah and Barak where they are at Mount Tabor and they are overlooking the valley. And I imagine that there were 900 chariots lined up there and Deborah says to Barak, the Lord goes before you. And I wonder for us, what, are, what is your valley? What are the 900 chariots that are waiting for you there where you have an opportunity to say, I will not go unless the Lord goes with me. You know, one of the opportunities I've been grateful for in my own life is the chance to go overseas a few times. I'm an American who speaks English, and when I'm immersed in another culture where I don't speak the language or know the culture, boy, am I taken out of my comfort zone. And I, I am so appreciative of that because it meant that I had to cry the cry of Barack and say, God, go with me. I can't do this. What are those opportunities for you? What are those challenges for you? We're about to have a time of offering. And as we give our offerings, our finances, whatever that may be, I want you to consider what other offerings in your life God is calling you to. You know, some of the opportunities that might be presented to you, maybe an uncomfortable place for you is to join a life group. Maybe an uncomfortable thing that God is calling you to do is to be a part of Hope 253. I don't know what that is. But in this offering time, Consider what that is. What is the valley with the 900 chariots that you are facing? And I pray that as we worship, as we participate in this act of worship, as as we give the offering, that you would feel God's presence. Let me pray for us. Father, indeed, as we enter into this time of offering, of song, of giving, we ask that you would help us to offer our lives. Open up to us a sensitivity to your spirit, sensitivity to your presence and what you are calling us to do, the challenges and opportunities. Lord, help us to not live lives of, of faithlessness. Help us to be really attuned to the spiritual reality that says that, Lord, we cannot do this on our own. And Lord, help us to rest, rest in your promise says you are with us always 
But Lord, let us now rest as we give this offering. Lord, bless it, multiply it. May we see your kingdom prosper. May you do amazing things through this offering, we ask. In Jesus' name.